Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. As some of you know, I think, I live about a block from the city line of Hartford, Connecticut. For some reason or other, our yard is full of animals, like full of animals. And they're, they're around our house and they're trying to interact with us. And uh, there's a cardinal who will follow my significant other's car up the driveway and land on the windshield wiper and look in at her. Um, and so one morning, about two years ago, I walked uh, to make coffee in the kitchen and there was a baby fox. And the baby fox was uh, at the sliding glass door. It was up on its little hind legs uh, and kind of pawing the glass door with its little front paws and wanting to come in. And I <laughs> looked at it and I thought, well, of course you would like to come in and perhaps you would even like to live your life with us. But that is not going to happen. Uh, you have a mother fox somewhere. Go find your mother fox. And and that was the end of that. But there are not everybody has looked at it that way. Uh, some people have wanted to know very specifically about how that set of interactions could have gone uh, and, and what that kind of interaction could tell us about the way that humans do interact with other species and the way that other species can wind up being domesticated and available to function either in partnership, communalism, or exploitation by human beings. And that's what we're going to talk about today, but we're going to make it very, we're going to make it about foxes, as they say. Uh, joining us right now is Lee Dugatkin, a professor of biology specializing in evolution, behavior, and the history of science at the University of Louisville, and the author of How to Tame a Fox, parentheses, and Build a Dog, close parentheses, visionary scientist in a Siberian tale of jump-started evolution. So um, Lee Dugatkin, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure to be here. So uh, we have to start talking, I guess, we have to start our story in, in 1959 in the Soviet Union. We have to start it with a scientist named uh, Dmitry Belayev. Uh, and what did D Dmitry Belayev want to know? Uh, what was his goal? Yeah, so Belayev was uh, a Soviet geneticist, and he had lots of experience um, working with domesticated animals, and he became fascinated with understanding this process of domestication, because today certainly, but even more so in, in this, the last 10,000 years, domesticated species have played this fundamental role in our everyday life. So Belayev wanted to understand how this process of domestication occurred. And something odd struck him, which was that he knew from his own work that there was a suite of traits that many domesticated species shared. So they, they tend to have juvenileized faces, floppy ears, curly tails, um, really funky color patterns. And the thing that struck Belayev was that this tends to be true of our domesticated species, even though we've domesticated them for a plethora of reasons, right? I mean, some, some of them we've domesticated to ride like horses. Others we've domesticated for companionship and protection. Others we've domesticated for food. And yet they tend to show this similar set of, of characteristics. And Belayev wanted to know why. And he came up with this fascinating hypothesis, which was that no matter what we domesticated our animals for, the one thing we always had to have were calm animals that were pro-social towards humans, because we can't have our domesticated species trying to bite our heads off. And so Belayev hypothesized 
that all the major domestications that have occurred in human history started by humans selecting the calmest, tamest, most social animals and parenting them for the next generation. And that all of the other things, the floppy ears and the curly tails and the different hormone patterns and the juvenilized faces, all those other things were somehow connected to calm, tame behavior. He didn't know how, but that was his hypothesis. So he decided he was going to test that, and he began an experiment testing that in foxes in the late 1950s. And this is kind of a fascinating thing, because whoever did a lot of this stuff, whoever converted wolf-like animals to dogs, whoever converted pre-cattle-like animal to cattle, they didn't write this down. This was before recorded history. Most of this stuff happened That's right. by people who couldn't tell us the story of how or why they did it. So Belayev comes up with this hypothesis that, yeah, it must be like niceness, compatibility, calmness, that must come first. And so he decides to take an animal that hasn't been domesticated, uh, the fox, and see how difficult that would be to do. We should say this experiment is still running 50, more than 50 years later, but Belayev was around to see an awful lot of that. So explain how this worked. He's got a bunch of foxes, 700 foxes, I think, at one point, and, and he's just basically trying to pick the nice ones and get them to marry other nice ones. That's right. So you, you go and you test these foxes, both when they're pups and you test them again when they're adults, and you come up with sort of a standardized way of measuring how calm or aggressive they are when they're interacting with humans. And you choose the calmest ones, and they, you know, they test hundreds of foxes, the top 10%, the ones that are 10% that are the calmest. Those are going to be the ones that parent the next generation. And so foxes breed when they're one year old, so basically a generation is a year. So every year you're going to repeat this process over and over and only select them based on this characteristic of how docile and pro-social they are towards humans. That's it. That's the only criteria for who makes it into the next generation to breed. Right. Although we should say that, and I've seen footage of this, I mean, they also were kind of doing the opposite, right? They just had some curiosity about, about what it would take to uh, develop a super bad fox. That's right. But that didn't happen for about over a decade after the experiment actually started. So for the first 10 years, they were only doing the tame half. And then afterwards, and, and since that point, from the early 1970s, they have been breeding this um, hyper-aggressive line, mostly because they would allow them to better understand the tame animals because they could do genetic crosses between the tame animals and the aggressive ones and understand the underlying genetics of the tame foxes. Um, so it was sort of another tool to understand them. Right. There's a horror movie waiting to happen with those super bad foxes. Yeah, I'll tell you what. I've been there a couple of times. The experiment uh, occurs outside the Novosibirsk, which is the biggest city in Siberia, and it's sort of out in the country, away from the, the city there. And when you go um, and you interact with the tame foxes, they will lick your face five seconds after they're put into your arms. You go near those aggressive foxes, and there's, there's no doubt in your mind that they would rip your head off if they could. Right. Actually, uh, you, we, you can hear a little bit uh, of this right here. This is uh, the sound of a person approaching the cage uh, of super bad foxes. Right, and my guess is that those clicking, clanking sounds you're hearing are the, are the foxes actually thrusting themselves up against the front of the cage, trying to 
uh, get the person. Right. Actually, that was a mistake. That was a clip from the second floor where we keep our interns. Uh, but the foxes, they sound, make basically the same noise, raising yeah. their hackles right. and, and making those uh, unpleasant noises. So let's go back to the, to the nice um, foxes. So one of the things that I think astonishes people, astonished people at the time and still does when you talk about it, is how fast this happened. We right. think evolution is something that happens over millennia. Uh, how fast was it, I mean, being much more selective than, than nature possibly can be, how, how f- much faster could the process become? Yeah, that, that's a great question, and I'm glad you preface it the way you did, because, because their goal had been sort of to super speed up the natural process by having these extreme criteria for how nice you have to be to get into the next generation. But th- so that was the ex- one of the experimental goals. Nonetheless, it, it, it even stunned Belayev and um, my co-author on this book, Ludmila, how quickly they began to see changes. So first, within five, three to five years, in terms of just the behavior per se, they were seeing much, much calmer, more tame animals. So by the fifth generation, sixth generation, they were seeing animals that when humans approached, these animals would wag their tails, they would lick human hands when the human hands were put into the cage and they would make sort of all sorts of sounds that indicated they like it when you came and they didn't like it when you left. And that was within, like I say, five to six years. Even perhaps more incredibly is all of these other traits that are associated with domestication began to pop up from about, you know, the sixth to the seventh generation into the experiment. So, for example, not only were the foxes wagging their tails in joy when humans came by, they were wagging their all of a sudden curly tails in joy. So they were beginning to show one of these classic traits, curly tails. You see them in dogs, you see them in all sorts of domesticated species. A couple of years later, about I think it was about the eighth generation, the eighth year into the experiment, um, they saw something that just blew their minds, which was that if you think of a fox, you think of an animal who has these ramrod pointy ears. And typically in the wild what happens is when foxes are really young, up until about six weeks, their ears are actually pretty soft and floppy. When they get six weeks old or so, they go ramrod straight. About the eighth generation into the experiment, they had this fox whose name was Nechtar, which means dream. And after six weeks, his ears were perfectly floppy still. And they were perfectly floppy after two months. And they were perfectly floppy after three months. And they were perfectly floppy after four months. And so now they were starting to see yet another one of these things that are indicative of so many domesticated species. And the same thing happened, the same time frame, you know, eight years or ten years. You're beginning to see really strange color patterns in their fur, which is another classic thing you see in domesticated species. And in, in the same time frame, they're also seeing dramatically reduced stress hormone levels in these foxes. So they were measuring from day one what, the, what their stress hormone levels were. And by the 10th generation of the experiment, their stress hormone levels were about half the level of a typical wild fox. All within 10 years, unbelievably quickly, a blink of an eye in evolutionary time. Uh, we, you know, we tend to say Belayev, 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 and, and rightly right. so. But uh, in fact, uh, as uh, even the co-authorship of your book suggests, uh, there was another person heavily involved in this, uh, Ludmila Trut, uh, who uh, long after Belayev's death kept the experiment going. But um, before we get to Ludmila Trut, 
I think it's also important to note this whole experiment is taking place against the backdrop of a Soviet Union that is for some reason or other deeply hostile to the notion of genetic research, to the notion of Darwinian uh, evolution as we know it. That This is something you could lose your life for doing something like this, right? That's absolutely right. When they started the experiment, there was a fellow by the name of Trofim Lysenko who had raised himself up from being essentially an illiterate peasant, and he convinced both the scientific and, more importantly, the political establishment in the Soviet Union that Western genetics at the time, Mendelian genetics, that that was bourgeois Western lies that were being spread by saboteurs, and that this alternative explanation that had long before Lysenko been disproven was correct. He made up data to make it look like that was the case. This um, long disproven theory was sort of more in line philosophically with communism, and so he slowly raised himself up in the hierarchy. And by the end of that raising himself up, he was Stalin's right-hand man on science. And so thousands of modern geneticists in the Soviet Union, which was a powerhouse in genetics before Lysenko, thousands of people lost their jobs, hundreds of them were jailed, and dozens were murdered by Lysenko and his thugs. And one of the people that was murdered was actually Dmitry Belayev's brother. So when this experiment began, they knew very well that it was dangerous to do what they were doing, and they would have to sort of do their best to fly under the radar, and they had all kinds of strategies for doing this. Um, you're sort of damned if you do and damned if you don't in the Soviet, former Soviet Union and in Russia, because uh, by contrast, uh, at, at the point of glasnost and perestroika, when Gorbachev uh, begins to remodel things, they also got screwed, right? By this time, I think Belayev is gone and uh, he's passed, gone to his reward. Uh, Lyudmila right. Trude is trying to run this thing. And, and they've got foxes starving to death, right? Because there's no money for food. That's right. So both when the Soviet Union collapsed and then um, after that there was this awful depreciation of the ruble. And, and when both those things happened, a lot of their money sources got cut off because you know, most of their money was, was coming from the, um, either the Soviet or then the Russian government. And, and you know, it takes a lot of money just to sort of keep 700 foxes fed and healthy, let alone do the actual experimental work. And so when that happened later on, they were in serious trouble, and it was only because Ludmila is um, incredibly driven and also incredibly clever that they managed to um, get enough money to just eke by for a while and then get the experiment of rolling again. Um, I think it's important. I mean, there's so many things that we could talk about here. Our time is limited. I would recommend that people read this book, uh, the title of which I will say again at the end of this segment. Uh, there are remarkable stories about what was done to keep this going and, and how ultimately worldwide exposure of the experiment uh, caused a lot of people to, to come to the aid of, of this woman. But I think it, maybe we should spend a minute or two on this woman. She's a remarkable story in and of herself. Um, who is Ludmilla Trude? Right, so Ludmila, she's one of the most amazing people I've ever met. So basically, from day one of the experiment, Belayev brought her in. And for the last 58 years, every day, she has been running this experiment, and she continues to run it at 83 years old. So she started at, at about 25. She was brought in because Belayev knew that he was going to have a tremendous amount of other responsibilities at his, um, running this whole institute that he was running in Siberia, and he needed somebody to do the everyday work. Ludmila comes in. Not only does she run the experiment, very, but very quickly, she and Belayev are essentially constructing all sorts of new hypotheses and testing them. She's sort of this combination of brilliant, sweet, and driven that, um, that you need, because this kind of experiment is extraordinary in biology. I mean, you don't have experiments 
that go on for nearly 60 years, day in and day out, with large creatures like foxes. And it's only because of Ludmilla that that's the case. Before we run out of time, um, and we are talking to Lee Dugatkin, who's uh, the author of How to Tame a Fox and Build a Dog, Visionary Scientist and a Siberian Tale of Jump-Started Evolution. I guess, you know, 60 years in, we, we know what Belayev was interested in at the beginning. You've told us that. Right. 60 years in, is this a different experiment with a different set of questions or merely a constant refinement of that original set of questions? Well, I mean, there are certain themes that have been going on all 60 years. And so basically, while the, 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 the details ha- have changed in terms of how they choose which animals are commest, that part of the experiment is still essentially the same as it was before in the sense that every generation they breed them, every generation they test hundreds of animals, and every generation they only choose the commest to breed for the next generation. So that's been constant. The kinds of questions that they've been able to look at with respect to domestication, of course, have changed over the years. And one of the key things that's happened over the last 10 to 15 years is with the revolution in molecular genetics, they have been able to sort of dig deep into the fox genome and understand domestication at that level by looking at um, the genetics of foxes and then comparing it with the um, genetics of dogs. And so that's one of the the things that they they do a great deal of today. They also do lots of work on the um, interesting but strange vocalizations that that these foxes make. Um, They do work on everything from not just hormones, but, but things like oxytocin, these, these neurohormones that are dubbed the love chemicals to understand whether or not the domesticated foxes um, show high levels of dopamine and other kinds of chemicals that are associated with prosociality. So they're, they're doing all sorts of things. But, but still, the heart of it is understanding the process of domestication in real time. That's what the experiment's always been about, and that's what it continues to be about. It's just that now they can dig deep into it in all sorts of ways that weren't possible 50 or 60 years ago. Well, Lee Dugatkin, uh, the book is a fascinating blend of science and storytelling uh, about some remarkable people and some remarkable animals. Uh, It's the perfect segue into our next segment. We will talk about what happens when some of those foxes arrive in America uh, in the home of people who plan on having them as pets. Lee Dugatkin, thanks for joining us for this part of the show. It was my pleasure. Thank you. So you just heard about this now 60-year-old experiment to create foxes who are more compatible with human beings, domesticated foxes. Um, So it's been going on for 60 years. So what happens when you actually try to have those foxes live in your home with you, more or less as pets? To find out, uh, we got in touch with Amy and David Bassett, the founders of the Judith A. Bassett Canid Education and Conservation Center in San Diego, California. They're the owners of several Russian domesticated foxes. Um, So first of all, welcome to the show, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, maybe, Amy, you can start out this story. How does one obtain Russian domesticated foxes? Um, it's actually not a very difficult process. We contacted Ludmilla Trutt 
and started discussing importing one into the United States. They work uh, exclusively with an importer who is an expert in importing uh, wild or exotic animals for zoos and for people. His name is Mitch Kelmason, and uh, he will send you a contract. You pick the sex of the uh, kit as well as the uh, color. There are about five different colors to choose from. And when they're about six months old or older, uh, Mitch and his partner go over there, pick one up, and bring them to you. So uh, something is vocalizing in the vicinity of one of you. Is there a fox somewhere near one of you? Um, It's actually a a New Guinea singing dog. (laughs) Okay, that was going to be my second guess was the New Guinea singing dog. Um, so um, and so, David, I, I don't know if we actually said this, but so the good news is that process is relatively streamlined. The bad news is it's going to cost you what nine, ten thousand dollars to do this whole thing. Yes, somewhere in that vicinity. Why was this important enough to you to do? I mean, I got my dog from a shelter. You have a voluntary donation or something. Uh, <laughs> 10000 seems like a lot. Why was this interesting enough to, to you to do that? Right. I mean, first off, we're animal lovers. So mm-hmm. this was a very unique animal. And what we really wanted to do was to explore the bounds of what these animals were capable of. And one of our thoughts initially was getting one and seeing if we could train them to do search and rescue work and in particular avalanche rescue. Uh, one of the natural behaviors foxes have when they're hunting in the snow is they actually have an uncanny ability to hear small rodents under the snow and just by the vibrations. And they'll go kind of triangulate as to where it is, jump high in the air, and then come down and come back up with a mouse in its jaw. Looking at that, we figured, you know what, when, when they're doing avalanche rescue, that's the kind of sounds that someone would be making under the snow. And certainly these foxes could hear it, and perhaps they can be trained in order to give some indication that that's where the individual is at. Um, so we just had a lot of curiosity about what, the, what these animals are really capable of and, and how they differed from you know, non-domesticated foxes. We should emphasize, uh, to the best of my knowledge, that's not happening. Like the next time I get trapped in an avalanche, nobody's going to say, "Well, we're sending a fox up to look for him." It's not currently happening, no. So, Amy. Uh, meanwhile, you guys have foxes uh, in your house. Uh, what's that like? Um, we actually don't have them living full time with us in our home. Um, that is not a possible um, scenario for having a pet fox um, for multiple reasons. Um, one, uh, you actually, when you import a fox from Russia, you don't get them until they're at least six months of age, which is past their socialization window. So a lot of the things that we do with puppies, you are unable to do with a Russian domesticated fox because you can't litter box train them. You can't socialize them to various um, things that one normally would in their home, such as don't chew cords, don't chew the couch. Um, And so when you actually have a fox living in your home, whether it be a Russian or a U.S. tame fox, the problem is they are very destructive. So uh, they'll chew electrical cords. And also um, where you can litter box train them, you can't do that 100%. And so they tend to get, when they get very excited, they pee um, and they poop. And so it is a sanitary nightmare to have them in your home. Um, And um, they are very agile. So like a cat, they jump on your counters. They jump. um, They can get in and out of almost anything, um, which also means that you have to be very careful with open windows, um, 
things such as that because they will they will escape and they won't come back. So unlike a dog, they don't they don't have the same trainability. So they don't have a recall. Um, so you have to just be very careful. So living with them, you know, in, in our home, like a dog, that doesn't occur. So they actually have enclosures, both indoor and outdoor, um, that they live in. And then we bring them out and interact with them in the home. Right. So if that Disney movie, Incredible Journey, had been made about foxes, basically the foxes just would have run off and started a life for themselves as opposed to traveling great distances to find their owners. Um, and so you, you don't live with them, but just go to go back to the peeing and pooping thing and not to bring up a, a hard memory for you, Amy, but didn't one of these foxes pee in your coffee? Oh, gosh, yeah. Um, so the other thing that they do is they like to mark their territory. And so... It's not uncommon that you'll be sitting there hanging out with them, and then one occasion, um, one of them jumped on the counter while I was sitting there having a cup of coffee, and um, I wasn't paying attention, and when um, I put them away, I grabbed the coffee cup, and there was just a little bit of coffee left in there, and I took a swig, finished off my coffee, and it wasn't coffee after all. So um, then I ran around the house, flailing my arms, asking for razor blades and acid to get the taste out of my mouth because it was one of the most horrific tastes that I have ever experienced in my life. And that is not uncommon. I travel a lot for work, so I would go through security, take off my shoes, and then kind of look around and be like, what is that smell? And then sure enough, I'd realize, oh, my God, that's me when I'm impeded in my shoe. And now I'm on a business trip for four days with my shoes smelling like fox urine. And it is potent and very distinct. Right. And it's not the kind of thing you can explain to the other people at the airport either. I have foxes. They pee in my shoes. Yeah, you can under- yeah. And it's, so I just always pretend like it's the guy next to me. <laughs> so, so David, you know, I mean, in the previous uh, segment, we were talking about things like oxytocin, you know, the so-called cuddle hormone and stuff like that. But I'm getting the feeling that whatever these foxes are um, genetically, how, however much they may have changed through this fascinating breeding program, they're not dogs, right? They're not going to curl up in bed with you. They're not going to do things like that. Well, you know, they might curl up on bed with you, possibly. But just as likely, they might, you know, leave and, and chew on your couch. So they're, 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 in some ways, you can think of them as more like cats in that they're somewhat um, very independent. Um, but, yes, they're, they're, they're foxes. They haven't bred out of them being a fox. They've just bred into them uh, the fact that they have a, a unique bond with people, much like dogs do. But that doesn't make them dogs. It just have some, it makes them have some commonality with dogs. Right. And that unique bond, though, it's it's a different bond, right? Like my dog, when I come home, you would think that, you know, some pop star had just entered the room, um, you know, and then the dog is pretty focused on me or or my significant other for the entire time that we're there. You know, we are the center of this dog's world. I get the feeling foxes are a little bit different, not that they don't love you or notice you or something, but it's it's not the same, right? Yeah, it's, it's, they express their emotion in a fox-like manner, much like a cat does in a cat-like manner. You know, a cat, you come home, it might say, hey, how you doing, rub your legs a few times, and then be on its way and not do what you described with a dog. The same is true with a fox. They're exceedingly excited to see us um, when we come by, but 
it's very different than the experience we get with the dogs um, because they're really separated by, you know, millions of years of evolution. So you're, you're not going to change that in 60 years. But what they did is explore certain elements of, you know, how wolves became dogs and can they put those elements into foxes. Right. So, Amy, that's what the experiment was about. Well, this, once again, we're talking about this, you know, now 60-year-old Russian experiment where they were selectively breeding, basically, for niceness, for calmness, for compatibility. Uh, so you get the so-called domesticated fox. Now, you have at least one other kind of fox there, right? You have uh, a, an American fox, a U.S. fox, uh, that wasn't bred that way. This is more what we might call a tame fox. But, Amy, explain what that means. So there are numerous uh, pet fox breeders throughout the country, people who obtain foxes from other pet breeders or from fur farms, and then they put them together and they breed um, foxes that people can purchase for around $500 a fox. And so these U.S. tame foxes, as you mentioned, are tamed, meaning that it's not a genetic change um, within them that is consistent throughout that population. So you actually don't have a good understanding of what that fox is going to be like as an adult. They typically change when they go through maturity. So even if you neuter them, there tends to be a very robust change when they're about eight months old. Um, we call that the October crazies. Um, and that typically happens when in the wild, the uh, kids are actually kind of pushed out of the home to be independent and to move on their own. And so we purchased one from a, a pet fox breeder. She was bottle fed from the age of 10 days old. We got her when she was about four to six weeks and we socialized her. We took her to Comic-Con, we um, trained her, we interacted with her in, in many different social situations as which you would with a puppy. And so we worked really hard with her, which is the nurture side of the, the combination of nature nurtures. And we wanted to see when she grew up would she be different than the Russian? And what we found is that she is absolutely different than our Russian foxes. Um, we actually just had some folks over yesterday. Um, when all of the Russians come out to greet people, there is a variety or a variation in how much they want to interact with the person within the Russian population. So we have from Boris, who is extremely social and wants to be pet and rubbed 24-7 by strangers, to Mikhail, who is a recent one that we got, who tends to be a little bit more reactive and skittish. However, that being the case, Ishi hid behind a dresser the entire time. So she wants no interaction with people. Um, she has minimal interaction with us. So she'll come up, interact with us, but her focus more is avoiding people. Can we just back up for a second? You took the fox to Comic-Con? Yes, we did take Ishi to Comic-Con, but it was a Comic-Con in Salt Lake City. And oh, was, in that case. Well, was the yeah, Fox yeah. watching the Avengers on television? You thought maybe, you know, maybe she'll enjoy this? <laughs> well, what we wanted to do is we wanted to um, really have a robust socialization program for her because we really wanted to, to explore the impact of nature versus nurture and nurture versus nature. Because Boris and Sophie for about six months of their lives in Russia, were never socialized. They had very limited human contact. They were in cages like other, quote, fur farm foxes. So we knew that, that, that they had missed that socialization window where we had this unique opportunity. So we took her to Comic-Con. Um, she pooped a lot. 
Um, so that that's was, common at Comic-Con anyway. It is common, yes. Um, and so she got a lot of attention. A lot of people fell in love with her. Um, so she has a little bit of a following on Instagram. Um, but, yeah, so we did things like that because what better place to socialize than something like Com- you know, Comic-Con in Salt Lake, which was crazy. Right. Well, the I mean, I went to Comic-Con, and I didn't want to interact with people for a long time after that. So that could have some explanation, help explain, you know, what's happened with the Fox as well. Well, this is, ter- this is terrific stuff. And uh, David and Amy Bassett, it's been so great to talk to you. Well, we should actually play a little clip of the Foxes uh, interacting with, uh, with you, I think. This is just you and the Foxes. Oh, look at you. Yeah, tell me. I know, Maxa. No. No. Okay, so that that sounds nice, and actually the video clip is even more inviting. But, David, I feel as though your ultimate message to humankind is that foxes really aren't ready to be pets in the conventional sense of pets. That is our position. What I always say is for, you know, 99% of people, they are not the right animal to bend your life with because it is, it is a, you know, a long-term commitment, 12, 17-year commitment. And um, for that other 1%, you know, it can be an incredible experience. But the trouble is to determine if you really do follow that 1% because many people like to believe they do, but then get the fox and find out that they're really not. So if anyone's even considering it, they need to really do all the research on them. And if at all possible, I would recommend a Russian fox over any other type because there really is a difference as far as the bond that you can have with that animal. And not only that, that animal is less stressed living with you because it actually has a bond with you also. Yeah, actually, you know, I began this show by talking about a morning two years ago when I woke up, was getting coffee, and I realized there was a baby fox uh, outside my door with its little paws up on the glass door, uh, pawing as if it wanted to go come in. And I told it to scram, and I'm even happier now that I did that. Uh, Amy and David Bassett are the founders of the Judith A. Bassett Canid Education and Conservation Center in San Diego, California. Uh, I'm assuming they own a lot of cordless things in their house, most of them perhaps intentionally cordless. Uh, They are the owners of several Russian domesticated foxes, and as you just heard, one tame fox. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. Fox in the snow Where do you go to find something you could eat? Cause the word out on the street is you are starving Don't let yourself go hungry now Ever since our intern Carmen started working on the show, she's become more and more like a fox. Carmen, the show is too long. I have to cut 50 seconds out of it. See, this is the problem with your whole generation. You've been taught that the rules don't apply to you. Maybe somebody needs a timeout where you go sit in a dark room and listen to Lydia's Nickelback albums. These kids! Carmen Baskoff, Betsy Kaplan, and I produced today's show with help from McPants. The part of Bill Curry was played by George Clooney. And now, back to Colin. We've been talking about domestication, specifically foxes. 
But what about domestication in general, and how does that change humankind's relationship to the animal kingdom? So let's talk about that in a broader way with Jacob Mikanowski, who teaches history at UC Berkeley and writes about science, history, and art for publications like The Guardian, Prospect, and the Los Angeles Review of Books. He wrote an essay on domestication for one of our favorite publications, whose name we've never really decided how to pronounce. It's either Aeon or Eon. Either way, it's a great publication. We love it. Uh, Jacob, welcome to the conversation. Hello, thank you. So let's talk a little bit about the notion of domestication. As humankind has domesticated animals, and if you're going to take aurochs or, or whatever, some kind of wild version of a currently domesticated animal and make it progressively more and more juvenile so that it doesn't quite understand the difference between its species and its human tenders, I mean, in a way, you can make the argument you're essentially damaging a kind of animal if you don't leave the other kind out there. That's true in a way. And a lot of our domestic animals don't have their wild species or their, their wild species is almost extinct. That's true of goats, the wild cows went extinct just in the 17th century. It's interesting. Do we have an ethical obligation to the wild species when we're doing this kind of genetic manipulation? But we've been doing it for at least 10,000 years. And some people think 30,000 years. <laughs> and this kind of genetic modification of animals, that's one of our oldest technologies. You know, with fire, the hand axe. We've been doing this for a long time. Well, the other thing that we do, obviously, is we take animals that might have been wild, we domesticate them, then we get tired of them as domesticated animals or don't maintain them very well, release them back into the wild. Maybe we, as an example, we could talk a little bit about wild pigs in California. Wild pigs in, in California are neither completely wild nor completely tame, right? They're feral which is uh, a little scarier in a way than being wild or tame. I think all through the American West and South, wild pigs are a big problem. I live in Berkeley, the East Bay, across from San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And every time I go hiking out in the hills, I see these giant traps for wild pigs. And they're always empty because they're much too smart. <laughs> they're pigs that have gone wild, have escaped from captivity, and breed freely, aren't under human control. And they're very smart. They only come out at night. They're very wary, and they destroy native habitats, they destroy crops, they undermine fences, etc. So everyone wants to get a handle on them, and it's really tough. I've never seen one. I've seen the damage they've done. But that's a common thing, and people who study the genetic history of pigs have an incredibly hard time because there wasn't a single moment when pigs were domesticated. They were domesticated over and over and over because they kept being domesticated, becoming wild, the wild pigs were brought back in to the gene pool, and then they went wild again, and back and forth and back and forth. So you have this weaving through of wild and domesticated. That happens with lots of species. It's especially true of pigs, and it's especially true out here. Domestication is not a one-way street. Well, is it? I mean, is there a way in which it is a one-way street? And guess what? I guess what I'm wondering is, I mean, if you have wild pigs who used to be part of a domesticated species, they get back out in the wild. And as you say, maybe they go back and forth across the line, you know, over the millennia a few times. On the other hand, my sense is that they're not going to become the old kind of wild pigs, right? Once we domesticate an animal, once we breed selectively for certain kinds of selected characteristics, if you just make them back into a wild animal for 100 years or so, you're not going to get the old wild animal back, right? That's true. The unifying thing in most animal domestication, and that it's in the fox experiment, is that you're choosing animals that are comfortable around people. 
And that means their fight or flight system is kind of toned down. They, they can't be as aggressive. They can't be as kind of high wired to danger. And it seems like almost every animal that's domesticated, that happens, that we want animals that are kind of more relaxed. Mm-hmm. But we, you get that by having animals that have smaller brains and weaker senses, that smell less acutely, hear less well, and have less brain power. And you can go back from being tame to being wild. But those changes, those deficits that we work into the animal, they don't seem to come back. So dingoes in Australia descend from tame dogs. They've been living in Australia wild for four or five, 6,000 years. And that brain size hasn't bounced back yet. Wild pigs, seems like their smell comes back slowly. We haven't had enough time. They've been wild here for 150, 200 years. But the brains are still smaller. So it's maybe so the, that's, yeah, that's may, right. Yeah. Maybe a useful difference, and it's a difference that's going to be blurred more and more as there are koi dogs and koi wolves and stuff. But maybe the, a difference that's useful to to talk about is the difference between a dingo and a coyote. A coyote, I mean, I, we we all basically live, these days live where there are coyotes. But coyotes typically you don't see coyotes unless they want you to see them, and they don't have necessarily any particular interest in interacting with human beings. And if they don't, they're really good at not doing it. Whereas I, I I'm assuming from what you're saying about a dingo. A dingo is retaining, retaining enough of the old genetic characteristics so that that might not be the case. I'm not sure how it plays the behavior, but on the molecular level and in the anatomy, you can see that despite thousands of years of kind of being on their own, the changes that made them into a dog rather than a wolf are still there. They haven't, if it comes back, it comes back very, very slowly. And they do live in partnership often with Aboriginal communities. So it's, they haven't gotten all of that wildness back. So you uh, write about different ways in which animals can become domesticated. And so uh, mostly I think what we're talking about is what you call the directed pathway. Humans deliberately try to change or amplify a particular trait that we want in an animal. But there are other things that we can do. For example, the prey pathway. Talk about that. And talk. Uh, I, I'm unclear as to whether the prey pathway involves any selected breeding or just the use of an animal a certain way. Well, it's a little bit of a mystery, actually, the origins of domestication. Directed breeding is kind of what we're used to. But it only really started happening once domestication was established. But going back to the very origins, 10, 12,000 years ago, it seems like a lot of our animals were, were first domesticated as prey. That means you spend a lot of your time hunting wild sheep, following herds of wild sheep, going into their valleys, following them on their migrations. And you're like, at some point, it's like, well, maybe we could make this a little easier on ourselves. Maybe we could catch a whole bunch of sheep at once, put them in a pen, and kill them as we need them. And that slowly develops into, very slowly, over two, three, four thousand years, develops into having managed herds of goats, sheep, pigs, reindeer right now. They're probably one of the latest animals to be domesticated. And people who domesticate reindeer up in Finland, northern Russia, also hunt wild reindeer. They follow herds of caribou or reindeer and they keep them in pens. And that's kind of where you start. It's interesting. People think horses were domesticated that way. They were domesticated because people said, let's ride these giant, terrifying monsters. And then you gradually figure out how to turn this animal you hunt into an animal you breed. And and I know that this is something that you've written and thought about. So that's a perfect example of what our notion of progress is, that our notion of 
the progress of human civilization is that it's smarter and more efficient for us to uh, essentially domesticate the reindeer or anything else. So it's sort of there when we want it. We can manage the herds. We can, uh, well, all of those things. It's just super convenient. We can probably try to have as many reindeer as we need as opposed to how many, as many reindeer as nature happens to provide us with. Is there an argument that that's not really progress or an argument against that kind of progress? It made civilization possible, makes the city possible, writing everything that comes from it. So we rely on it, but there are costs. And they might be subtle because you need to get away from hunting for all of your food to have the kind of population that can sustain cities. But it changes something about human relationship to, to nature. I talked with an anthropologist once who lived with hunters in northern Siberia, people who got all their food from hunting. If they needed something else, tea or sugar, they got it by selling furs, real hunter-gatherers. And, you know, you told me the, the attitude towards animals is totally different, that it's not a relationship of domination. I'm going to go out and I'm going to find an animal, I'm going to kill it, and I'm going to prove my superiority to it. It's almost totally the reverse. It's that you're going in to a world of equals, and you're hoping that they let themselves, that they give themselves to you. It's a relationship of total respect. Historically, that's something we've definitely lost. A lot of managing animals is hobbling them, restraining them, keeping them tied up or fenced in. A way of relating to animals becomes a way of relating to people. The first cities, the first cities in Mesopotamia, the words they used to talk about a slave or a scribe or a dependent, they took that from the language that they used to talk about cattle and sheep. So once you start dominating animals, maybe it's easier to dominate other people. Maybe that relationship becomes one you can imagine. So one of the things that we've been talking about uh, elsewhere on this show, uh, Jacob Mikanowski, have been the ballet of experiments in 1959, starting in 1959 with foxes. These are, this is something you know a lot about. It's been the inspiration uh, for some of your work. So, you know, as you look at those experiments, uh, which we've covered elsewhere on the show, what's your takeaway there? I mean, is this the beginning of a new kind of manipulation of a species? I think the Fox experiment is, is extraordinarily fascinating. It's really opened up Vista's understanding domestication, which is only, we still don't understand everything about it as a process. The, the setup of that experiment is so intuitive. Just see how the Fox reacts to being in a room with a person, being in a cage with a person. By doing that simple procedure, you're doing something to the genetic architecture of the entire organism. You're not just changing behavior. You're changing skull shape, ear shape, the brain, your endocrine system. You're changing all these linked things in an organism through this very simple breeding procedure. You're doing some really complicated, what amounts to genetic engineering. But in a way, from our vantage point right now and, and a vantage point, say, 15 years out from now, it might also look a little bit like the horse and buggy. I mean, you, because of what we're about to talk about now, technologies like CRISPR, you don't even have to wait a lifetime or a couple of lifetimes. Presumably, you can change an animal even more quickly than that, right, by simply manipulating its gene structure, adding new codes to its DNA. Okay, let me give you sort of a, a hardcore example. A lot of people these days, for example, have raccoons in their lives. Raccoons come and they, they like the same stuff that we like. They realize they can get it from the vicinity that we live in. They're really good at figuring out garbage cans and 
and some raccoons look like come right up to your door. They'll put their little hands out. And Absolutely. Just, just the same way that, that you might like to have a fox. Some people might like to have a raccoon. The problem is that, of course, there's no way of knowing the moment at which a raccoon might decide to bite your face off. So um, I'm assuming with something like CRISPR that pretty quickly, if we wanted to, we might be able to get that kind of raccoon that could hang out with us. I, just say a little bit about that. CRISPR is an incredibly powerful new tool for changing genomes. It's basically a kind of set of scissors that lets you go into a genetic code, snip out whatever you want, and put in whatever you want. So you can snip out a gene, put a gene in. So you can conceivably, in the future, makes it a lot easier to do any kind of change you want. The problem is we don't understand the genome. We don't understand all the interactions. At this stage... I don't think we know enough about the raccoon gene to say, let's just go in there and snip and make a friendlier raccoon. Well, in the future, as we understand that better, maybe we could make you know, a perfect mix of raccoon and fox and <laughs> labradoodle. Right. I think only the rich people in the Hunger Games would have those pets. And so what you're Probably. saying, though, is that in, in so doing, we might create a raccoon that's more susceptible to a, a pathogen in its environment or more susceptible to a genetic disease. You might develop a raccoon species that had a way higher incidence of, I don't know, raccoon hemophilia or something. Right. That's what you're that's part of the worry. That's part of the worry. But, and part of it is that it's just we have a lot of ability in manipulating genes, but without necessarily all the knowledge of what genes actually do. It's easy now to say put in a single gene, put in like a gene that makes fireflies glow and put that into, say, mosquitoes, mm -hmm. make mosquitoes glow. It's harder to do something complicated like make an animal smarter, cuter, nicer. Behavioral traits are complex but the potential is kind of unlimited. But we might just not know enough yet to do that, and we might not know what the consequences are. This is we're really kind of looking over the horizon right now. Right. And this might be a good place for us to end. We've been talking to Jacob Mikanowski through the miracle of Skype. Uh, he writes about science, history, and art for publications like The Guardian, Prospect, The LA Review of Books. He wrote an essay on domestication for Aeon or Eon, as the case may be. Either way, uh, Jacob Mikanowski, thanks so much for being part of this show. Thank you. It's been fantastic. All right. Thanks. thanks. The fox had a wife without any strife. They cut up the goose with a fork and a knife, and they never had such a supper in their life. And the little bones chewed on the bones, oh, bones, oh, bones, oh. They never had such a supper in their life, and the little bones chewed on the bones.